0: Christmas decorations are well and truly down, we're back at work, and well, Brexit. It's time to talk about Brexit again. But never fear, the weekly economics podcast is here. We're back for a new series, and we're kicking off with the biggest issue there is right now. Besides climate change, obviously, and homelessness. And to be honest, all sorts of other important things we could be talking about instead, but obviously Brexit has really crowded out other debates, generating more heat than light. This week, we're asking if we want to make the UK and indeed the world a better place to live in, what's the best or least bad Brexit outcome possible? Can there be a progressive Brexit? Or should Britain remain and reform? I'm Aisha Thomas Smith, and this week, we're talking about the economics of Brexit. Give me strength.
1: The single market, Customs Union. The single market, Customs Union. The single market. It's not as as
2: simple as clicking your fingers. Customs union. Single
0: market. So, before I introduce our lovely guests, let's start with a recap. Is the vote definitely one hundred percent going to happen? Yes. We will therefore defer the vote schedule for tomorrow
1: and not proceed to divide the house at this time.
0: Last month, the Prime Minister delayed the vote on her Brexit deal because she was expecting a big defeat in the Commons. The latest news is that this vote will be on the 15th of January. That's tomorrow, if you're listening on the day this episode comes out, although there are rumours this could be delayed even further. Some cross-party manoeuvring has tried to restrict the likelihood of a no-deal Brexit and make sure that the PM produces a new Brexit plan quickly. If her deal is rejected,
1: this country and I've laid this amendment because I am really worried that delays, drift, or brinkmanship mean that there is now a serious risk we will end up crashing out of the EU with no deal in just 80 days'
0: time. And I think we have a responsibility not to just stand by. The I... eyes to the right, 303. The nose to the left, 296. <laughs>
2: Thank you, Donald. Good evening, everybody. This afternoon has been one of the most extraordinary political shenanigans and rows going on in the House of Commons.
1: What is your plan B? I'm
2: explaining. I'm explaining. OK, I'm, I'm still waiting. The uh, the idea that they can magic up some alternative plan is not an option. So you don't Delaying, have a plan. Hang on, you said you had got a plan B. You haven't got a plan B. Yeah. Delaying to have a second referendum is not an option.
0: what is the plan? What is your plan? Our plan is <laughs> on the table. No, plan... I just asked you, what is your plan
1: B? You say, I'm going to tell you what plan B is, but I know, have I missed it? No. <laughs> no, no.
2: Our plan is to deliver the agreement that's been negotiated with 27... Do you really think that's oh, going to no get through on
0: Tuesday? Do you really think you're going to win the vote?
2: I, I don't know. I, I suspect we might not.
0: So, what are the options? Paul Mason recently described Lexit, the left-wing case for Brexit, as a political fantasy. But is there still a progressive case for leaving the EU? Was there ever one? Or is our best chance to stay in the EU and reform it? Can it even be reformed? We wanted to get to the bottom of all this, so with me today are two economists who share the same values but have come to different positions about Lexit. Grace Blakely is an economics commentator for The New Statesman and research fellow at the Institute for Public Policy Research, or IPPR, if you're cool. She's also writing a book on the financialization of the economy called Stolen, How Finance Destroyed the Economy and Corrupted Our Politics, which is out later this year. Hi, Grace. Hi. Thanks for being here with us. Pleasure to be here. And we've got an old faithful back, Laurie McFarlane, who is economics editor at Open Democracy and research associate at the UCL Institute for Innovation and Public Purpose and, of course, a returning friend of the pod. Hi, Laurie. Hello. Nice to have you back. We've really missed your dulcet tone. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone since has just been, you know, scratching in my ears. It's not been the I've same. I've missed it too. Oh, thanks. Sorry. Okay. So, first of all, Grace, we asked in the intro is there a progressive case for leaving the European Union and what are some of the economic advantages of it? So, what are your thoughts?
1: So, I think. Um you know, whether or not there's a progressive case is a different question to whether or not there's a socialist case for leaving the EU. I had this exchange with Andrew Neil a while ago discussing um, what the difference is between social democracy and democratic socialism. And I think a lot of it hinges on that. So there are a lot of people who are not socialists, who don't believe in kind of uh, democratic public ownership of the means of production the commanding heights of the economy uh for whom you know you there is not really as much of a, a case for for leaving the eu because those aren't things that that would be prohibited um but for socialists who are for public ownership and um potentially other other things such as ca- such as capital controls um there the the case rests on two uh interrelated factors so the first one is um, EU provisions around state aid and the level playing field. Um, and essentially, these are, are motivated by a desire to kind of uh, make sure that markets are free and competitive and the state doesn't have too much of a role uh, in determining how economic activity takes place um, and that the state isn't you know a massive economic actor. Um, there's been a lot of debate around whether or not state aid rules would actually prohibit much of what's in the current Labour Manifesto. And I kind of agree with people who say that actually, you know, most of the 2017 manifesto probably doable under um, existing EU rules. And others who say that actually, you know, even a kind of more ambitious socialist agenda would be permissible because you look around the the EU and you see uh, much greater levels of state ownership um, than you do in the UK, Um, which again, you know... uh, I'll come on to this a little bit more later, but a lot of it really depends upon, you know, the underlying political economy and the historical development of the European Union and the single market. And when you look at the historical trajectory, what you see is a tendency and some say an inbuilt tendency towards, uh, you know, neoliberalization, financialization um, and away from uh, state ownership uh, in the economy. The other and for me, the bigger issue is around capital mobility. Um, and again, I'll talk a, a little bit about this later. But uh, there are some some great books that have come out recently, particularly uh, Globalists um, by Quince labodian that looks at the development of the kind of architecture of international finance um, all the way back from kind of the 19 and uh, looks at the kind of project that was at the heart of um, what neoliberals wanted for the global economy – Um, to embed commitments to capital mobility. uh, Quick explainer,
0: capital mobility.
1: Sorry, Um, so uh, the ability of uh, people, investors, to move their money from one place to another without taxes on um, exchange transactions or any of that sort of thing. So China, for example, has exchange controls. uh, And under the Bretton Woods system that prevailed in the post-war period, a lot of um, countries, including the UK, operated capital controls where you could only take a certain amount of money out of the country. Mm. Um, And this was intended basically to kind of curb flows of hot money the um, Keynes, when he was designing, uh, well, helping to design the Bretton Woods system of exchange rate pegging thought would undermine that system of, of kind of currency pegging uh, and which today has been really integral. You know, those capital flows have been really integral in um, creating financial inst- instability and they were a central part of the financial crisis. Um, so, yeah, and the EU is part of this international architecture that was built. Um, well, was the the building of which was influenced by neoliberals. It's not fair to say that the EU was built by neoliberals. Of course, it wasn't, um, but its trajectory has been influenced by the kind of rise to prominence of, of neoliberal ideas um, and ideologies within the international financial institutions, uh, and you can see that especially um, since the 1980s. And in the single market, you have, of course, commitments to capital mobility. That's one of the four freedoms, and a really central
0: part of of how the single market is supposed to work. Mm. So. In a nutshell, this is... Sorry, that was a (laughs) lot. It's it's, it's not going to be a a succinct nutshell, but Mm. would the argument be that if we were, when we do leave the EU, if we were to then have a Corbyn government or a kind of Labour government based on the current manifesto as is, Mm -hmm. we'd be better placed to be able to achieve some of those, put in place some of those policies than if we were still in the EU.
1: So, uh, I mean, it really depends on whether or not you see the manifesto as the end point or a a starting Mm -hmm. off point. For those of us who look at the Corbyn project as attempting to rebalance power in society, then the 2017 manifesto is just a kicking off point. You know, any further reforms are going to require not just breaches of European state aid rules, but also, you know, the thing about capital mobility is that it gives investors veto power over government's decisions. That was always the intention behind it. It was so that the bond vigilantes, um, investors could withdraw their money from states that weren't kind of abiding by the the rules of, um, of neoliberalism and impose that market discipline. And Corbyn, if perceived to be, um, you know, Going towards a more radical position would be highly likely to be subject to those same punishments from from bond markets, from currency markets, mm. uh, and so capital controls would really have to be a central part of any democratic socialist agenda. And not to mention, you know, uh, a lot of people from all around the world, a lot of economists, heterodox economists, are now saying overtly that capital controls are actually a really central tool for um, policymakers to be able to use to improve financial stability. So there's a
0: kind of obvious economic case for it as well. Mm. Okay, so Laurie, I've seen you over there itching to dive in. Uh, I'm going to ask you just kind of broadly what you think the, the maybe the dangers or disadvantages of leaving the EU might be, but also to respond to some of what Grace has said about, about the possibilities.
2: So a lot of the debates, Grace has said, on the left on Brexit, I think has focused in on whether or not EU rules and laws as they exist today prohibit certain things or not. And on this, I kind of find myself in a slightly unusual position for a Remain person because often the debate has been people on the Lexus side saying, oh, these rules will stop me to this. And often people on the Remain side saying, well, actually, they won't. Um, and I'm not under any illusions about the rules. I think that actually the a lot of the EU rules are problematic for um, someone of my kind of, of politics but crucially i think that alone isn't a reason therefore that says we therefore must leave the eu in order to make in my view a convincing argument to leave the eu you need to therefore also justify a number of other things so firstly um you need to be able to say that the only way of escaping these rules or um avoiding them um is is by leaving the eu so there's no other there's no other way of of doing that within the eu um you also need to be able to demonstrate that actually by leaving you actually gain more sovereignty over these policies and indeed other policies. And I think that's absolutely not clear-cut at all. In any form of Brexit, apart from the hardest form of Brexit, it's very likely that we will be bound by these rules anyway. Um, For example, under the Labour Party's proposal just now, to stay in the customs union and a close relationship with the single market, we will absolutely be bound by these rules, but we'll sacrifice any say over them whatsoever at all. In addition to that, there's lots of influence that we have that we will lose by leaving. Um, so, for example, for all its flaws, one of the things the EU can do, which hardly anyone else can, is hold multinational corporations to account. Um, and the UK on its own will be an insignificant player in the global economy. It won't be able to do that. So there's a reason, for example, when Mark Zuckerberg got hauled in front of the European Parliament, he turned up in a second. When the UK Parliament tried to invite him, he didn't even bother replying mm. because he knows that, that, you know, it's just we're, the UK on its own cannot hold international capital to account. Mm. Um so I don't think necessarily that leaving actually does, by any means, guarantee uh, that you do get more sovereignty. Because, particularly, because it relies on the very, very hardest of Brexit's, which there is no real um, appetite for on the left. There is no real power base for that on the left. The, the percentage of both the population and the parliament who are both pro Corbyn and pro Brexit is actually very small. And politics is about power. And given that the the the, the, the lack of power on that position. I think it will get crushed by the right-wing form of Brexit, which does have a popular support base in the public. The Tory base is very in favour of a hard Brexit. It does have a very powerful base, both in Parliament and a very well-funded campaign uh, from, for example, US corporations, etc. And then finally, I think you need to be able to justify as well as all of that, that even if all of that you do think stacks up, you then need to be able to say, well, actually, on balance, the benefits of leaving outweigh the costs, Um, And on this, I just don't think that um, it necessarily does at all. On this, again, the the normal debate that you hear, people focus on the kind of headline figures that the Treasury or the Bank of England or whoever has produced that says, you know, GDP is going to fall by 10%. Um, Now, I don't think we should ignore them. I mean, I think that we should ignore the specific figures because, you know, at the end of the day, there's always a huge margin of error of these things, and there's there's all kinds of motivations behind them. But the general message that it will probably impact negatively on the economy, I think, shouldn't be ignored. But there are also all sorts of, of other costs as well, um, like we will almost undoubtedly have uh, it'll impact migration. And finally, there's geopolitical factors that I don't that I think we need to be really really careful not to ignore things like the Irish border question. Mm. Um, And I think to begin with in the Brexit debate, nobody really talked about this as much of an issue. And it's proven to be by far the most tricky issue for Theresa May. It's really what's hamstrung more than anything else. And I've not heard a convincing case from a Lexit perspective that says we're going to go for basically the hardest Brexit that's possible because that's what you'd need to do. Um, Put aside the question of how that would actually happen, I don't think, I can't see how that could happen, even if it could. How then you address the Irish border question, I've not heard an answer to, and I think that 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 can't be ignored as well.
0: Mm. So... Grace, I've got I've got loads of notes. I, I can see that. I can see. I'll see if I can address all away. of the points that I think Laurie made. I'm gonna so I'm gonna do a ding ding and bring bring you back in. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> but broadly, what we're going to be looking at is so what what you've said is kind of as you've laid out the possibilities if we're out of the EU for a kind of democratic socialist agenda that might be perhaps beyond what would be possible if we stayed. Laurie, it's not that you specifically disagree with Grace's points it's more that there are other factors that you're kind of thinking about such as even if we were to leave uh when we are to leave if those things were to we would have to have that kind of space would that mean that we would necessarily get some of the things that Grace is is advocating or or saying that we might and the kind of cost benefit question so I want to kind of bring you back in Grace and ask do you think that the advantages outweigh the disadvantages as just kind of laid out by Laurie
1: I think that the advantages can be made to outweigh the disadvantages. The, some of these issues, and particularly the issues that I'll come to in a second around um, international trade justice, uh, democratic accountability, are things that we just haven't spoken about for decades. Partly because of, you know neoliberalism has been hegemonic, but partly because you know the Britain's relationship with the rest of the world has been filtered through the kind of lens of of Europe. The two other issues, the other kind of um, potential positives from leaving are for me to do with, that there aren't economics. So I mentioned the two economic ones, state aid stuff um, and, and capital mobility. The others are democratic accountability and the global trading system. So when it comes to democ- democratic accountability, you know there's all sorts of evidence to suggest that um, a, a significant reason for the creation of all the international institutions was to make sure that democratically elected governments would not pursue policies that upset capital markets. Um, and when you take a, a huge amount of economic policy out of the realm of democratic accountability, that allows you to embed commitments to investors that states will continue to pursue the policies that you want them to pursue. But of course, it comes at the expense of democracy. There's actually, I've got a quite a good quote here. Is it? Can I read it? It's yeah. from Alan Greenspan, yeah, yeah, yeah. who um, was asked by a Swiss newspaper which presidential candidate he would be supporting in 2007. And he said, we are fortunate that thanks to globalization, policy decisions in the US have largely been replaced by global market forces. National security aside, it hardly makes a difference who will be the next president. The world is governed by market forces. Mm. Now, he presents this as a neutral fact, but it's not. You know, that world has been created by by politics, by political mobilization, by a particular set of actors. Um, and obviously, it's been created in their image. So that issue of democracy is, is important. And then there's the question about global trade justice. So the current trading system we live in is stacked against the interests of the global south. Um, You have, you know, I was at a conference a while ago where some trade advocates were saying that today, free trade agreements, including and if not especially those made by the EU, are not free. They're not about trade and they're not agreements. They're uh, enforced on many countries in the global south. They're primarily about things like intellectual property, so preventing them from using generic drugs, about um, arbitration, so investor state dispute settlements, for example, which allow... Uh, corporations to sue governments if they don't abide, if they kind of damage their profits, mm-hmm. and a whole host of other really regressive things. Not least opening these markets up to uh, capital mobility, which allows the capital to be sucked out of of these economies and to accrue in the kind of global centres of capital in in London and Wall Street. So, but based on those two things, I'll kind of come back to some of what um what Laurie said. Firstly, this kind of idea that the Lexa case is based on like socialism in one country, right? That's a, a familiar argument that people level against um lexit but for me it's it's actually quite the opposite of that there is a space for a, a socialist government in the uk to ally with uh, governments all around the world particularly in the global south and with socialist governments to think about okay what is a new socialist progressive approach to international trade and to do so either within existing institutions which is unlikely because most of them in terms of their format are stacked against in terms of voting rights um the global south or to create new institutions
0: Laurie I want to come to you we're in a utopia we are we're outside of the EU oh. we've got a yeah yeah yeah. no we are stay with me so we're outside of the EU we've got a socialist government we're, we're allied with countries in the global south we're looking to build new uh, multilateral uh, institutions which are actually democratically accountable and have trade justice embedded and all this kind of stuff that sounds great what are you moaning about?
2: But the problem is that, as you described, that's a utopia. Um, the The problem is not that system. If we could, if necessarily it was possible to get there, I just don't think that it is necessarily possible to get there. Why not? I, so I don't, I don't necessarily disagree with anything Grace said there at all. I think the the main point of disagreement between us, I think, clearly is, given all these things that we just said that we want to achieve, how is it best place to do that? Mm. Um, and I think that the UK outside of the EU its ability to actually forge an an own independent policy, free from the constraints, from the big economic power blocks of the world, like China, like the US, and like the EU. And the, the only area, the main area where the EU is a superpower, it's not superpower in many respects, it's not military power or anything else. But in terms of trade, it's the biggest trade block in the world. And in terms of regulation, in both of these, it is literally the biggest superpower in the world. And it's on our doorstep. And we can't, necessarily just detach yourself from that. And instead, I think that if we do, our chances of actually making significant changes to the way that these, these global systems work, I think that the best way of doing that is being an influential player within the EU. And we shouldn't forget as well that many of the things that we both, Grace and I, don't like about the EU are there because of Britain's influence within the EU. Things like competition policy and state aid, heavily influenced by the UK, Thatcher rolled back the frontiers of the state in the UK looked at Europe and saw state monopolies and state intervention and fought very, very hard to try and uh, have an EU framework, which uh, a neoliberal EU framework, which kind of fought, fought against that. And I don't think we should underestimate our influence within the EU to, to actually change things. I don't think that if we did go for a hard Brexit... Um, that we would be able to wield that kind of influence on the global stage, whether it's sort of rewriting the rules of multilateral institutions or the global trading system or anything like that. The reality is, we will be a rule taker from the, from the power, the economic power blocks in the world, um, and I think that there's there's very little we can do to escape that.
0: Mm. I feel I'm really tempted to kind of, because I feel like what I'm hearing a lot is like th- from you, Grace, is mm. like this This is all the stuff that we could have if mm-hmm. we leave. This is the best case scenario. And kind of what from you, Laurie, is, yeah, but this is realistically what's going to happen and what's possible. And both of them feel a bit to me. I mean, yours, Grace, feels a bit depressing because it feels out of reach but wonderful. And yours, Laurie, feels depressing because it feels true and shit. So I just feel like I need a bit of like let's let's stick with maybe let's stick with for a little bit longer in the realm of kind of like of big ideas and thinking about what's possible but then i am going to drag us to like what kind of brexit do you actually want and what do you think is Mm -hmm. possible within the bounds of what's actually happening right now can i come
1: in on yeah on just that point Mm -hmm. about about political possibility because i think Mm -hmm. a lot of it is really determined by um how you view our current historical moment this particular juncture in which we find ourselves The reason that uh, what I am advocating might seem kind of utopian is because as a Marxist I see the development of capitalism as um, kind of characterised by inherent contradictions which uh, occasionally kind of rear their heads in moments of extreme crisis. And this is what you saw in 2007. You saw the breakdown of um, the system of of finance-led growth, which was premised upon uh, the massive increase in uh, the size of the global and the exposure of the global banking system, uh, massive increases in in household debt that turned out to be completely unsustainable. That wasn't just a contingent fact. It wasn't just that the the financial crisis happened because uh, we failed to regulate the banks properly or people made some bad decisions. That happened because it was an inevitable consequence of the mm. type of capitalism that we were pursuing up until that point. And those moments are moments of uh, amazing possibility and of contingency, because as Milton Freeman says, what happens during those moments of crisis depends on the ideas that are lying around. You know, the neoliberals yeah. were hugely yeah. successful in uh, building a, what would have been an inconceivable economic model. That's why uh, many people see socialism and and socialist ideas as as utopian. But really, you know, what Marx said is is that these are, they're sensible. What is utopian is the idea that capitalism can continue indefinitely and that things can carry on going on as they are without creating continuous crises.
0: And that makes, one second, Laurie, that, that makes a lot of sense. But what it feels like to me is that we're kind of out on a limb. We're on our own at the moment. We're very much an island. And so, yes, while I could understand if we had lots of other allies who were reaching that same kind of uh, junction together then it might feel more like that kind of aperture that you're describing but is it that right now?
1: Again we're in this ramshiny moment of the old dying the new not yet being born and that movement potentially has a chance to really grow and develop and turn into something amazing and you know an alliance from us yes we're not that important i don't have any kind of um doubts about uh the british imperial hangover influencing the idea that we are somehow still a global power we're not but we are still the fifth biggest economy in the world mm. uh, and that
2: matters laurie so um yeah i just wanted to come in because again i don't just in relation to the point about the moment that we're in um and again i don't disagree with any of that but if we just put this in the context of Brexit, because The Brexit tiers on the right have somewhat of a similar analysis, not not through a Marxist lens by any stretch of the imagination, (laughs) but they recognise the the potential juncture that Brexit opens up. And for them, they realise that Brexit is an opportunity to reshape not just the British economy, but also reshape uh, the global system as well. Mm. Um, But for them, the vision is, you know, Thatcher Thatcher on steroids kind of open up the NHS Mm -hmm, to mm -hmm. privatisation, etc., and when we look at, so both, both the mechanism for change in both Grace's vision and their vision, Brexit is an important part of that.
0: Mm.
2: But for me, the, the most important argument against Lexit, I think, is that when it comes to the crunch, they will win and Lexit will lose because it, there, is no po- there is no power base for Lexit in mm. this country at the moment. And I think that if we rewind back to 2015, for example, a year before the referendum, I think that if we were having this debate now, I think I would still be saying that that Lexit is, I would probably still be saying it's not desirable, but I would have said it's maybe feasible back then. So if there was, for example, you know, a mass mobilisation of people, you still had like Tony Benn was still alive, there was like popular figureheads leading it, and there was a real kind of popular support for it, and indeed, not just in grassroots, but in parliament as well, then I think the situation might be, I would still probably not agree, but I think it might be in a different place. But I think the reality of the situation is now is that Brexit, when you look at the power structures behind it, is a right wing, is an extremist right wing project for mm-hmm. the most part. And therefore, if if hard Brexit happens, that will be the vision that ends up happening, not the one that Grace just outlined. I think. Mm.
0: So t- basically, to get to where to anything like that, the me- the route that you would need to go down is kind of already blocked by people who have more power than the people who would be pushing that agenda
2: it might not have been i still don't think it would have been possible so okay, again for 2015 but i think it would have been more possible certainly than it is now it would have been much more possible than it is now i think
0: grace
1: yeah so you know for me the questions now are you know as i said i'm in favor of Lexit, i'm going to kind of continue talking about it basically to try and convince people that it's you know a viable strategy but over the longer term you know i can see if yeah the labor party going to the next election we would probably based on the uh, the nature of the membership have to campaign for Remain. The other option is a lot of people are now saying that the most likely outcome is um, Norway plus plus a customs union. Um, In which case... What do you mean by that?
0: Norway plus a customs
1: union? So like a... um, So we'd be in the customs union, which would mean that we wouldn't be able to make any trade deals. um, And we'd be part of the single market. So we wouldn't be able to basically all that stuff around the four freedoms would still apply. It would cross all of the red lines uh, on migration on all that sort of stuff. But it would solve the Irish border issue. And ultimately, it would go back to the point that immediately after the referendum, all all the kind of hardest of hard Brexiteers, well, maybe not the hardest, but most Brexiteers were talking about leaving, but staying in the customs union or the single market or whatever. So there is potentially a case that that would happen. If that did happen, what I could conceive of as happening is that when a socialist Labour government came into power there would be depending on how radical it was a confrontation with the EU whether it was about state aid rules or about um, capital mobility and at that point I think we would be in a better position to be able to start having these discussions generally by saying you know what is more important to you the Labour Party manifesto or staying in the EU. So, yeah, I mean, that's the kind of strategic course of action that I could could see happening based on the current balance of forces because, yeah, I agree, there isn't really enough of a coalition to make Lexit happen as it stands.
2: Mm. Can I just come in on mm. the on the Norway Plus? Because I think um, it's important to raise this because I agree that recently there has been sort of signs that this is becoming, on the Labour side as well, uh, people shifting in that direction. John McDonnell's been sounding people out about it. Owen Jones today had a call in The Guardian saying... You know, this is probably the least bad outcome. And for me, this is probably the worst of all worlds, a type outcome. Oh, because you everything that applies, everything that applies in the EU, being in the EU, still applies. Freedom of labour, labour capital, goods, services also applies. We have to abide by all the rules, but we're outside the EU and we have no say over them. And the mm-hmm. as a third country, the EU will police that very, very strictly. Mm-hmm. We'll have a, a, a and if we don't abide by it, they will just sever the agreement, and we'll be the losers, big losers from that, mm-hmm. not them. And so we're in this world where all of Grace's concerns and concerns I share are all are also there, but we can do nothing about it. If you know, if you know what I mean, and I worry that that is that is an op, that is a place where where we might end up because people will go. Well, you know, we can't. If we we can't not do Brexit. So we'll do Brexit in name only, mm. um, and basically by doing this kind of Norway Plus type thing, mm. um, and end up in a position which I, as I say, I think it's the worst of all worlds. If we're going to do that, why not just try and like fight to stay in? You know, like mm. if, if we're going to, if that looks like the realistic option, then why not just why not mm. just fight to stay in?
0: We we're almost out of time. I do want to hear a bit more from you, Laurie, on the kind of fight to stay in argument, but just on the Norway Plus thing. Isn't that kind of the safe... It feels to me that that sounds quite safe based on the government we do have at the moment. Like the idea of having some restrictions in place that mean they can't just kind of... The hard Brexiteers go full kilter and do whatever they want m- makes me feel a bit less uneasy than the idea of having no regulation and then being able to just, you know,
2: ride roughshod. And it's the kind of taxation without representation argument. You know, the UK would have no say over large, large parts of things that, are, things that affect our economy. Bear in mind, it's not just things today, it's things in the future that will come in. So new technologies, new Mm -hmm. industries that don't exist today. You know, imagine if 20 years ago, we had no look at the things that have happened in the last 20 years with Internet and all this kind of stuff. We'd have no say over that. We'd have to we'd have to just um, abide by it. And so um, as a Democrat, I do think that that is deeply uneasy, uh, uh, uneasy outcome um, for me. And I do think it's something that could be that could and should be avoided.
0: Okay, so just tell us a little bit more about the kind of argument to remain and reform. Is that possible?
2: So I do think, so it it is possible to to some extent, again, I'm not uh, under any illusions that the EU can be sort of transformed into some kind of socialist utopia, you know, overnight or in a couple of years or anything like that. Um, I don't think it can be. But I think that um, the EU, what we should bear in mind is certainly compared to the British state, which is centuries old um, you know very very set in stone very very hard to change the eu is actually a young organization it's changing all the time the rules and laws that exist are constantly being bent and broken particularly by the larger more influential countries the country that breaks the rules most in the eu by far hands down it's not greece or anything like that it's germany by far Mm -hmm. Um, and the uk actually doesn't do that it's actually relatively rule uh, abiding if you know if you know But nonetheless, the UK has had huge influence. It's been very successful at shaping the EU frameworks to suit its interests. On financial services, for example, before we left uh, the EU, our commissioner in the EU was uh, Lord Hill, uh, who was the commissioner for financial services. He was in the process of reintroducing the revival of securitization across Europe. Mm -hmm. Securitization, the, the toxic packaging up, slicing and dicing of Toxic financial products that played a key role in the financial crisis, and our, our representative of the EU was trying to trying to revive that because the UK's interest under a neoliberal government was to promote finance capitalism across the EU. Under a socialist government in the UK, say for example under Jeremy Corbyn, that dynamic changes quite dramatically, particularly if it's accompanied by, for example, Melanchon government in France, which is not not necessarily impossible at the moment. Other other leftist movements across Europe. The balance of power uh, changes, mm. um, so that's the kind of reform argument. But even even if you know the thing about the UK, which I think has not been appreciated enough, is we are in an incredibly privileged position within the EU. We're not in the euro, so a lot I find a lot of the Lexa arguments and critiques against not this exhaustion here, but I mean in, in general when you hear Lexa arguments, what often it's critiquing is the eurozone. And people say, oh, "Well, look what happened to Greece. You can't reform because if you try, they they strangle your economy and shut down your banks." That that can happen to us because we we have the Bank of England, we have the pound, we have our own sovereign uh, money system, and so there's a lot that we can do. We don't need to wait for reform. There's a lot that we can do ourselves now. On what what there might be a diplomatic row and a small fine that comes of it, but so what? This is part and parcel of the fight to change and change and reform the the institutions of the European uh, the European Union. And so, I really think that we need to be much bolder in thinking. Um, often I find, despite on the, on the Lexit side, despite, there's often a kind of a, 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 quite a sound understanding of power. But until it comes to the kind of EU laws and regulations, people go, oh no, but the rules say you can't do that, therefore we can't do it, we need to leave. It's like, well, no, laws aren't these permanent lines in the sand that always exist. They're social constructions that are shaped by the balance of power in that institution, and they can be remoulded, broken, bent according to shifts in power. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's going, to be a lo- that's going to be a struggle, that's going to be a long-term thing. As I say, I don't think we should try and pretend that, th- that the EU can somehow be transformed into this you know, continental Europe socialist paradise mm. overnight. But um, your argument
0: is we can only do it if we have a seat at the table. Yeah, yeah. exactly.
2: And if we end up in a Norway-type thing, no Norway seat. plus whatever, then that's, no that's finished.
0: Grace, yeah. um, final for my thoughts you're, gonna, you're Yeah,
1: gonna... I mean, I th- actually, I thought Laurie's um, exposition there was, was really interesting and I completely agree with his, his theoretical stance that law, especially international law, its enforcement um, and its interpretation depends much more on uh, power relations than um, statute itself. Mm. Uh, And, you know, the whole liberal argument that, um, you know, law is this neutral objective enforcer of of liberalism is obviously bizarre operates as a veil uh, to legitimize the existing power relations. Um, So looking at those power relations, you know, you're going to come up against the reality of of German power, of the power of of capital, not just in a kind of abstract sense, but you know, embedded in the institutions of the EU, in the way the Commission works, in the way the Council works, in the way decision making works, because the Parliament is essentially completely toothless. Mm. Um, the the response to that is always, well, the British state, as Laura was saying, is is much more kind of embedded. It's it's you know the currents uh, of the kind of power of capital within it runs much deeper. But the big difference is that it's possible to capture the executive, and in capturing the executive in a um, in the context of parliamentary sovereignty, you gain a huge amount of power to uh, transform institutions and make them work differently. Uh, and in an international institution like the EU, uh, not only um, is parliament clearly not sovereign, but also you know there there is no route for capture of the executive other than transforming. Well, well other than. Um, Every single member state or the most powerful member states electing socialist governments and then mm. clearing out the commission, which, again, is, you know, uh, and even then uh, it, convincing a German socialist government that its interests were um, best aligned by completely transforming the way the Eurozone works and effectively turning would the only way to make it work would be to turn uh, the Eurozone into a kind of federal model would be a really big stretch. That's kind of my Understanding of why remain and reform sympathy wouldn't work again, and it's just that the power structures would prevent that. The other thing to know, and I think in terms of you know looking at what the best future relationship is uh, with for us is with regards to the EU. Uh, Laurie's is quite right to point out that a lot of Lex arguments talk about Greece and Italy and about um, the eurozone. But I think the thing that we have to bear in mind is, again, think about this idea of, of historical junctures, about contradictions, because the Eurozone is beset with essentially kind of irreconcilable political and economic contradictions. And personally, I do not think that it, it, in its current form, it is sustainable. Either you're going to be looking at a Federal Europe, but uh, Germany is, and the Northern European countries are highly likely to stand in the way of that, or it will... Breakdown. And I personally think that at some point in the next several decades, we will be looking at a collapse of the Eurozone or at least a massive fragmentation. And I think it's probably in our interest to be as far away as possible when that happens.
2: The point about um, Germany is really interesting, actually, because although in the UK, partly because of the way that the the press have covered the EU, there's this idea that we're kind of bossed around by the EU and, mm. and stuff like that and we're this minimal player. Actually, a lot of countries uh, were re- quite sad when Brexit happened. One of the reasons for that was because the UK was a counterbalancing force against Germany within the EU. Because you're right, Germany is a hegemon, even more so once, well, completely once the UK leaves. But the UK did provide that, that, that countervailing power towards German power, um, uh, which played quite an important role. And ironically, because we're not in the euro in the sense that other countries are, the UK was by far the country that's the best placed in order to spearhead reform within the EU, because it's not shackled by many of the other things that other people are. And we're the one country that has unilaterally decided to leave. And bear in mind, once we leave, the EU and the Eurozone are still going to be there. So it's not as if by leaving that that solves that problem. Indeed, in many, in many cases, it might even make it worse. You know, and we all we all probably agree here that the EU's approach to its external borders has been shameful with all the deaths in, in Mediterranean Again, like leaving, yes, we agree that's bad. Leaving doesn't solve that. All it means is that we sacrifice our ability under a future progressive government to be able to influence that in any way, shape or form. Same with the Eurozone and everything else. The suffering that's happened on the Eurozone is is horrific. And I would hope that as a priority of a progressive government uh, in the UK, if we were in the EU, would be to try hard in order to try and fix that or help in some way, shape or form. But leaving, again, it doesn't address these problems. It just sort of says, well, we're going to try and leave and i think we probably won't even do a good job of leaving it doesn't really address them it just leaves them over there to kind of get worse if anything brexit means brexit means
1: brexit brexit Brexit. Brexit means brexit means brexit is it hard soft is it gray white actually we want a red white and blue brexit
0: okay so we've been we've been as always kind of deep under the brexit blanket for a long time i'm coming out we're hot and bothered and what i want to ask just to just to take us home is the next month is obviously going to be quite critical in terms of what happens next so in either of your scenarios laurie and grace what would ideally happen in a kind of best case over the next month to set us on what you think might be the right path laurie do you want to kick off
2: I think what needs to happen in the next month, I think it's very clear that Theresa May's deal isn't going to get through, um, despite her attempts to kind of bribe, beg and strong-arm MPs. It just isn't. And that means the default position is a hard Brexit. And I think that, although it's difficult and in many ways there's risk with it and it's unsatisfactory in many ways, I do think that Labour therefore should come out with a, um, I, I agree that they should prioritise a general election, but I think that's unlikely, and therefore um, should be on the front foot uh, campaigning for... A second referendum, and I think it's important that they're on the front foot about it and leading it, because otherwise it could happen by accident, and the people that will be leading it will be the kind of you know FPBE you know kind of centrist Remainer types. And if and I don't Shut think I don't think reason. by any stretch of imagination it's it's by any sense given that a second referendum would be a Remain. I don't. It's completely completely all to play for, and the key thing is to ensure that the status quo cannot be an option. The message needs to be radical change both at home and in the EU. And critically, and if it's going to succeed, it needs to be led by people who understand the need for radical change and who have the backing of the Labour leadership. And indeed, I think of the other progressive parties as well. If that doesn't happen, if there is a case where there is the second referendum, does happen, but the people who have the have the momentum behind them is the kind of Alistair Campbells, Tony Blairs, etc., then I think that um, it... it, it there's a severe risk that uh, Remain would get trounced in a second referendum. And that's why I think Labour really need to be on the front foot at this juncture and and be bold about their decision to to pursue that.
0: Okay, Grace, next month, what do you reckon?
1: So we've got a couple of options, haven't we? We've got Theresa May's deal, no deal, general election, second referendum,
0: Mm.
1: um, or potentially staying with some sort of EEA, Norway Plus style model. Theresa May's deal isn't going to pass. There's no question about it. She's banking on the, like, top model of the Troubled Assets Relief Program in the States where it initially didn't get through Congress and then the markets tanked and then they got it through Congress. That kind of model. Equally unlikely because so few people get anything that they want out of it. Then there's a no deal, which, again, highly unlikely, although, you know, a lot of people do say that all that has to happen for a no deal is for parliamentarians not to do anything else, although it's much more likely that they'll just extend Article 50 and at that point we get to a renewal of the democratic process in some form or another so a general election or um a second referendum there's no majority for a general election we've got the fixed-term parliament act you'd have to have a two-thirds majority or you'd have to have primary legislation repealing the fixed-term parliament act and again that would take a long time then you have a second uh, you know then you have the potential for a second referendum again you know people are questioning now whether or not the numbers are there even for a second referendum um you know we could end up at a point of, like, complete and utter constitutional crisis. I've heard people talk about, like, you know, what happens when the government can't govern, but we can't have a general election? Can the Queen still dissolve the government? Mm, like, it gets to that say. point. Um, <laughs> then the other option, I think <laughs> I think this is why a lot of people are saying now that we may just end up with a Norway Plus-style yeah. thing, mm. um, because it's actually maybe one of the only options for which the numbers are even there. You know, for me, second referendum, if it happens, again, I'm not really sure that the numbers are there now. I would have said at the beginning of the year that would be the most likely. Now I'm not 100% sure. I would be arguing for Labour to campaign for leave, for Lexit. But again, you know, the, we just haven't had enough time to make that argument. And I don't think that, that Corbyn could legitimately upset the membership to that extent. So, you know, in, the, in that case, you've got EA membership which as i've said you know it's it's bad it's not a good outcome but what i would see happening would be again labor coming to power in the next general election and um there being a confrontation and at that point the issue being reopened
0: bloody hell i don't think i've ever ended a brexit podcast feeling any like anything other than an old tea bag. but right now i feel particularly wrung out um it looks like we're going to norway Maybe. I
1: am actually going to Norway in a Are couple of weeks. You? Yeah, they asked me to come and speak about this. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Norway
0: plus. You can go and heckler. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but
2: you've like saved up for it. It's like 12 pound a pint in Norway. So
0: Is it? Like, yeah. <laughs> right, should we get out of this stuffy sweaty room? Yeah, it's Let's very warm. warm. Right. We're not done yet. <laughs> oh, I've got to do the thing. I've got oh. the thing. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Right. So That was great. Thank you both for coming and spending time with me and explaining all those things. I genuinely, I do feel enlightened. I feel enlightened, slightly more depressed, but also I do really think that what you were saying, Grace, it feels, feels that it's quite important to at least be able to conceive of some kind of alternative, to conceive of some kind of uh, other political possibility, because that's part of the struggle, right, is just the political imagination. Um, also everything you said Laurie about it being shit. Um <laughs> <laughs> anyway Grace Blakely thank you so much for being on the Week at Economics podcast where can people hear more from you if they want to
1: thanks for having me follow me on Twitter at Grace Blakely with okay. two E's um, and yeah read my column
0: and buy my book and when's that dropping August nice summer book boom mm-hmm. and Laurie McFarlane nice to have you back yet again same question where can people find you how can we at you
2: Uh, You can also find me on Twitter at L2 underscores. Don't ask me why. That sounds
0: and awful. then
2: MacFarlane, M-E-C-F-A-R-L-A-N-E. Yeah, I'm not sure why I got <laughs> it. It's so catchy.
0: It's caused a lot of confusion.
2: People, I've, be, I've noticed that I've been tagged in things with one underscore, and I've just been missing stuff. And you mm-hmm. can you can usually find me writing or at Open Democracy. I got Instagram recently. Ooh. Don't really know what for because I don't really know mm. how to use it. But I am on there. Um, Pictures of to post, economics, uh,
0: you things like yoga pics. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Did yeah. yoga once. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, maybe,
2: maybe that's what you need to do. Start yoga, start posting on Insta. Yeah, New Year's resolution. give up
0: all this economics. Yeah, <laughs> that's it. Just I would you 100%. Yeah. I'll do the um,
2: shot myself in the dark room for 10 days type yoga.
0: Oh, God, yeah. I think that was pre-record, so that's just going to confuse me. <laughs> um, <laughs>
2: anyway, that is
0: it for this week. If you've enjoyed having us back and listening to this episode, please tell someone about it. As always, you can drop us a line with your comments and questions. We are at Weekly Econ Pod on Twitter, no underscores. The weekly economics podcast is produced by James Shield and brought to you by the New Economics Foundation. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. See you next week.